Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. It's nice to be with you. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. Today on the program, my guest is Sheila Hetty, author of the novel Pure Color. So I had that this sentence, God is three art critics in the sky, when I was writing How Should a Person Be? And I sort of thought, well, what does that mean? Like, I don't know where that sentence came from, but I remember walking around with it in my head and walking around with it on a cue card and trying to figure out how does this belong in the book? What does this mean? Why do I have this thought? So that was around 2005. And then I guess when I started writing this book in early 2018, I was like, well, maybe here's the time now to think about what that sentence was all about. That is Sheila Hetty talking about her new novel, Pure Color, available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. It is a beautiful book, philosophical and big-hearted and at times whimsical. It is a novel that at its core is about grief and patrimony. And it is a book that has a lot on its mind, as do all of Sheila's books. Pure Color is about life and death and art and criticism. It's about the life beyond life, if that's a way of putting it. And it tells a story that is grappling with the grandeur and mystery of the cosmos. And it also brings into unusually sharp focus the beauty and the magic of the everyday. It's a moving book with a sweetheart. And of course, all of it is shot through with Sheila Hetty's wit and intelligence and her singular vision. This is very much a book that only she could have written, and I'm happy to welcome her back to the program for another conversation that is coming up in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton & Company, publisher of The Family Chow, the new novel by Lan Samantha Chang. The Family Chow is a highly entertaining portrait of a Chinese-American family grappling with the dark undercurrents of a seemingly pleasant small town. 
John Irving calls the family chow, quote, a Dickensian drama of family conflicts and intrigues, an insightful comedy of the American immigrant experience and of a small town's inner workings. That's The Family Chow, the new novel by Lan Samantha Chang, available now from W.W. Norton and Company. Today's episode is also made possible by Northwestern University Press and their new release, Deadweight, a memoir and essays by Randall Horton. Deadweight chronicles the improbable turnaround of a drug smuggler who, after being sentenced to eight years in state prison, returns to society to become the only tenured professor in the United States with seven felony convictions. Lyrical and gripping, Deadweight reveals the lifelong effects of one man's incarceration on his psyche, his memories, and his daily experience of American society. Listeners of the Other People podcast can get 20% off of Deadweight or any other title at nupress.northwestern.edu. That's nupress.northwestern.edu. Just use the promo code PPL20. Okay, so before we get started with Sheila, I'm going to read some listener mail quickly. I got a, list, uh, a letter from a listener named Paulette who says, Dear Brad, are you a cat or a dog? Signed, Paulette. And I think I'm a dog who wishes, or I'm a dog who suspects that it's probably a cat's world. That's what I think. I think that if you want to be an effective human in the world as it is presently constructed, you're probably better off being a cat. You have to sort of be sly and agile, maybe a little remote, and capable of being homicidal and predatory when necessary. There's something sort of self-assured and in command about a cat. Whereas I think I'm more like a, I'm like a St. Bernard who just, who just got out of the pool. And I love cats. I wish I had a cat, but uh, my wife and daughter are allergic. So uh, we have a dog named Twiggy, who is my shadow and apparently my mentor. So I should also give a quick update on my book, as I've been doing Uh, For those of you who are new to the program, I have a novel coming out in May called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is a work of autofiction. And, you know, this is where I'm at right now. I've got to figure out if I'm going to do a tour, which is annoying because of COVID. I don't know what to do. Like, what's it going to be like in May? You sort of have to make a wager. And then with everything being so upside down, as it has been for the past couple of years... You wonder if you do go out and tour, if anybody's going to show up or is everybody going to just stay home and, you know, like have Zoom cocktail parties or whatever. I don't know. Part of me kind of wants to, you know, wants to get on a plane and go someplace and part of me wants to stay home, but I've got to decide. I also want to say some thank yous to people who have pre-ordered the book. Big thanks are in order for Colleen Leonardi, Dane Barr, Eden Lepucky, John Levy, Matthew Clark Davison, and Stephen McInerney. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys very, very much. If you are out there listening right now and you would like to pre-order my novel, that would be nice. I would be happy about it. 
The book, again, is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Just go to bradlisty.com to pre-order, use whatever online bookseller you prefer, and, and if you send me a screenshot of your proof of purchase, I will give you a shout-out right here on the podcast, and I will write you a note in the mail that will include an official other people sticker. I might even draw you a picture. So just email me the proof of purchase to letters at otherppl.com or else you can DM the show on Twitter or on Instagram. All right? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So my guest today is Sheila Hetty. She is the author of 10 books, including the novels Motherhood and How Should a Person Be? She is also the former interviews editor at The Believer magazine. Her new novel, Pure Color, is just out from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, and I really loved it and loved catching up with Sheila and talking with her about life and art and her new book. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Sheila Hetty, and her novel, One More Time, is called Pure Color. Yeah, well, no, my father died when I was writing the book about a year into my writing of it. So I probably worked on it for three years. And, you know, that was something I had dreaded my whole entire life since I was a child. Because his father died young when he my, when my father was young so I always sort of knew that was a reality that your father can die because my father's father had died so he'd been with me since childhood so it, it sort of felt like something I'd been dreading and then when it happened it was nothing at all like what I imagined it would feel like or be like and so I, I started writing about that I didn't think that it was part of this book that I'd been writing but then about six months after I had written that initial stuff, I realized it did have a place in the book and a sort of perfect place in the book in some way. And then when you're grieving, I suppose 
the feelings that you have constantly are changing. So then with all those changing feelings, like every six months or something, there would be new things that I felt like I had to write down or wanted to write down. And so it very much came out of the difference between what I anticipated that experience would be like and what it was like for me and for my father. This is a very spiritual book, I felt. Like, and I know that word is sort of, you know, problematic for people, but I don't know how else to describe it. And <laughs> yeah, I, I like to what you say about the actual lived reality of losing someone and bearing witness to their passing versus the dread of it and like the mental narrative that we sort of construct around it in anticipation. And there are so many like, what is it? Highlighter worthy lines in this book. I underlined a lot. And there's one that I highlighted, which describes the experience of his death, where she said she had held him when he died and the heat that filled her was his spirit entering, which spread through the interior of her innermost darkness with an exploding and infinite light. Like that's pretty woo woo. And yet <laughs> I found it recognizable, you know, just the way that Mira in the aftermath of her father's loss almost has this kind of like magical experience of life. I think what's disappointing about daily life so much of the time is everything just seems so trivial and you have these huge feelings in you and there's nowhere for them to latch onto because what you're doing is going to the post office or, you know, the, the tasks in one's day do not match what you have inside you. But when it comes to something like a parent dying, finally, in some way, you everything that life is can attach to that experience and everything that you have inside you can attach to that experience and be engaged with it and overwhelmed with it and transformed by it. So it's kind of amazing. You know, like I had not known and especially not from my reading, I had not known that it could be amazing even in spite of the loss and in spite of the sadness that there could be something new to life in the wake of the death of somebody whose death you've always dreaded. And again, like I wanted to write about it for myself because I felt like I would forget that, you know, if I didn't write it down. Right. Yeah. Like that's the, that's sort of the bummer about it is that you, like, or at least from my perspective, you'll have these moments at a funeral where like everything gets kind of stripped down and you feel like prioritized or something, or at least I do. But then eventually like life creeps back in, <laughs> you know, it, does, it's not, yeah. doesn't seem sustainable to stay in that place where you know what's important, you know, that's what, yeah. that's what eventually gets frustrating is because then suddenly you're like yelling at somebody on a customer service call or something. <laughs> you, know? you, yeah. become, you become like yeah. a plain old human again. Yeah, exactly. So this book has its own operating philosophy and its own kind of mythology and, and uh, it makes its own case for how the world works and how the universe works. And I thought that for listeners, it might be useful to break it down a little bit. Like you have in the book, uh, humanity divided up into three categories. There are birds, fish, and bear. Could I, or is it bears? 
I think it's bears. But, bears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so could I have you just talk a little bit about each one so that people can get oriented and understand sort of the, what is it, the taxonomy of pure color? Yeah. So the first thing to know is that this is the first draft of creation and God is an artist who made this world and sort of humans exist or we in this draft exist to critique the world and God can hear our critiques and learn what's wrong with the world and make the next draft better. And the three types of humans are looking at different aspects of the world. So the birds are looking at the world aesthetically and are interested in beauty and art and are probably the happiest because if the world is a work of art, then there's nothing to say against the beauty of the world. It is magnificent. So the birds are the happiest. And then there's the fish who are interested in the world from a structural point of view, a political point of view, what is best for the many. That's what they're thinking about. And the bears are sort of interested in their own. They're concerned with the people that are closest to them, their family members, and that's their main concern. So they're they're critiquing the world in terms of like sort of one-on-one -on -one familial relations. And that's what they notice as they go through their days. So this is a book that is in part about criticism. And you were, I think I read somewhere that you were having trouble writing arts criticism, which you have done in the past while you were in the headspace of this book. Is that, was that the case? Yeah. I don't think I wrote any book reviews over those years, over those three years. I mean, I was thinking about criticism and what is criticism. And part of the reason I started thinking about this book was because I, I mean, I started writing it when I, when motherhood came out and there was a lot of, there's a lot of negative reviews and I was thinking, oh, what is the worth of this? And what is the worth of this for me? And why is this important? And why is this what humans do? And so I think thinking about criticism from the outside made it just feel really weird to sit down and write a critique of a book. It just wasn't, I wasn't thinking about criticism in that. I don't know. I just, I couldn't do it. I tried. I, I wrote a I wrote a review for the New York Review of Books who I've never written for before. So this was my first time writing for them. And I just, I fucked it up. Like I couldn't, I, I gave them a draft. It was of Annie Ernaux's work. I read like all 20 of her books. I love her. I gave my editor a draft. And then like three months later, because it was the beginning of the pandemic, she came back to me with the edit. So the edit took forever to get back to me. And when I saw what I had written, Three months earlier it just looked completely incoherent to me and I I just couldn't even do the rewrite and I feel like that sort of kept happening I, I wrote an introduction to a book and if I look back on that introduction that I wrote it was it's not good I just couldn't I couldn't think about books in the way that you need to when you're writing criticism somehow has that returned now that you're done with this book and it's like the process is over? I think it's returned. I think I'm able to again. <laughs> Interesting. But I, I think that's relatable. I mean, you only have so much like brain power, you know, to devote to a certain kind of thinking. And I, I get like the idea of like in the writing of this novel, being on the outside, looking in and then not having the ability to kind of simultaneously engage in it. Uh, yeah. And just so that people listening are kind of oriented, there is, you know, your main character or your protagonist, Mira, attends, she's a, she's a, an aspiring critic and she attends 
a school called the American Academy of American Critics, which is, I find very funny. And I think it's kind of a commentary on, it felt like a commentary on social media to me, uh, the age that we're living in, like we're just digital media in general and everybody having takes and how the critic, you know, everybody's a critic basically. Uh, is that the right track? Yeah, I was thinking about that too. And why are we compelled in this way? And 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 I I didn't want to say this is so bad. I want to I want to think about well, in what world, in what way could, how could this be important actually? Like, what, why might this be important to life that we be critics, or why might this be the deepest thing in our nature that we're critics? And yeah, what would the rules of our universe have to be in order for the fact that we're critics to be as important as possible. Well, there's a line in the book that made me laugh, but also made it make some sense where you say like in this, in this God's first draft, you know, in the world that we exist in, it's God's first draft. He sort of wants a do over or she sort of wants a do over. Like I'd say he, I just, I was really trying to figure out what the God's pronoun should be. And I, I settled on he. Oh, you did. Okay. Okay. I was trying to be like woke, you know, but uh, nothing, <laughs> You say uh, nothing would be as we hoped it would be here in the first draft of existence. People were finally beginning to catch on. Our rage made sense. <laughs> and I think that's like there's always I'm always fascinated by like the deeper human reasons for why people say and do the things that they do. And I kind of think the same thing when I'm observing social media or, you know, digital takes and hostility and all the anger and argument that can manifest there. I'm like, what? what has really got everybody so worked up? You know what I'm saying? Sometimes I don't think it's the thing itself. I think it's something underlying it. And that's where my interest is. Yeah. And I'm interested in what it is the thing itself, because I, I do think that often it is the thing itself. And, you know, you want to hope that that anger can or that outrage can make things better. In the book, it can't because God doesn't want anyone fixing the world. He wants to admit. He wants to do all the fixing. It's like the jealous creator. Like, no one can touch my work but me. No one can touch my draft. So, you know, anyone who fixes things, like God returns them to the way they were before. And that's kind of how I feel about life, I suppose, that there's, if there is progress and there's going backwards and other directions, you know, like there is kind of this sort of stable state of how good and bad things are at all times. So I want to talk about the, I mean, we've, I've touched on this already, but like the, this is a book that has like an operating philosophy and like a theory of the case in terms of how the world works. And it sort of really believes in itself. And there's a wildness creatively to the book that I really admire because I think that to do something like this and to pull it off requires like a lot of skill, but also a lot of courage. I'm wondering about building this theory of the case and dealing with maybe fear that might have arisen though maybe not you know with respect to like is this a good idea can i pull this off like did that sort of stuff arise for you i don't think i had those specific worries i mean i did have the usual worries of like is this book going to be any good am i going to be able to pull it off but like not you know you sort of have that worry with every book like am i ever going to get to the end is it going to all make sense together? Am I going to be able to draw all the pieces together? Um, but I don't think that it was like I wouldn't have experienced courage. Yeah, because I don't think that I thought 
that there was anything wrong with sort of making this cosmology, as you put it. Yeah, so I'm not sure that that feeling would have come in at all. How did it originate? Like, where did you start with it? And did, is there a through line in your book with, with all of your books in terms of how things get started? Like, do you, like some writers, it's like a character, some writers, it's a sentence and writers, it's a title. Like, how did this one begin? So I had that, this sentence, God is three art critics in the sky. When I was writing, how should a person be? And I sort of thought, well, what does that mean? Like, I don't know where that sentence came from, but I remember walking around with it in my head and walking around with it on a cue card and trying to figure out how does this belong in the book? What does this mean? Why do I have this thought? So that was around 2005. And then I guess when I started writing this book in early 2018, I was like, well, maybe here's the time now to think about what that sentence was all about. So that's how it started. You know, and I read something when I was getting ready for this talk where you said that you've often begun book projects with the idea that you were going to write about the history of art. Yeah. Uh, so this is that kind of squares, right? Like God is three art yeah. critics in the sky. I mean, if, if you're making God into an art critic, it seems like you're headed in that direction, right? So, and this has been the case for other books too. I always want to write this nonfiction book about the history of art, or in this case, like I want to write about the history of art criticism. And it's strange that this book became so, you know, sort of fantastical because I, I really did start researching like art critics, you know, from the time of the Paris salons and, and they were what they were writing about Manet and then this art critic, Albert Wolf. And I, I was getting deep into this historical research and then I just, I lost interest in that, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it is a, it's a more fantastical book, I think, than your previous works. And I found myself wondering, you know, as I was kind of like piecing it together, it seemed like you were writing this in response to grief and loss in your own life. That seemed pretty obvious, but then like the fantastical elements of it and the engagement with reality at this level of spirit and wonder and magic, you know, is that, is that a big shift in terms of how you interact with the world personally? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, did the loss of your father and the writing of this book bring you into a new kind of engagement? I know we've talked about how you can't necessarily hold on to those, you know, those moments. We always revert back to some kind of norm. But did it change, I guess, the way that you conceive of reality and spirituality and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, and death, especially death, and not feeling at all afraid of it anymore. So that was a huge change. But I think I've always felt this kind of floating feeling. I don't know how else to put it. Like, I guess there's the animal feeling of like being on the ground, you know, and sort of uh, being on the earth. But I've always also even more, I think, had this kind of floating feeling where nothing is quite real. And I guess that could be interpreted as a feeling for the spiritual element of life. I think it's like also a feeling for the fact that, yeah, that none of this is quite real. And it's sort of strange. It's just so strange. And, you know, what are we doing here? And what are we supposed to do with this life? And like, why do we have bodies? And all that stuff has just always been very, very present in my feelings and in my thoughts. I mean, when I was a little girl, my father would talk to me about the universe and 
the stars and just everything. I mean, he didn't believe in God, but had a lot of awe and wonder in his character. And I think that just maybe I would have been that way anyways, but for, for, for certain, like those conversations made me feel really displaced from being on the ground and moving through the world. So yeah, maybe that's a spiritual feeling to feel sort of apart from like just the material fact of existence to feel not quite connected to it. Or just, I think like for me, a lot of times it's just like, this isn't, there's a lot more that meets the eye. Um, a lot yeah. more than meets the eye, like looking at things, like it's very easy to just kind of move through life and to conceive of our lived reality our conventional reality as being like the total picture when in fact it's anything but. And mm-hmm. I think maybe being at close range to death, especially the death of a, a loved one or a parent brings us into contact with that. Do you believe in God? Because it's just so weird. Well, I was just going to say, it's just so weird that, um, they're there. It's the, like it's it's like the most certain thing you can say about your life is that you have a mother and father. I mean, they've been there if they've been there like since the day you were born, and then suddenly one day they're one of them is just gone. You know, it's just so it's just like you can't really wrap your mind around it. Like for me, when I dreaded death, I dreaded it because it seemed scary to me. But it's not scary. It's just crazy. Like where, where's that person? I think they're, I think they're in us though. And I think your book sort of speaks to this, like, you know, and forgive me, I don't mean to presume, but it just seems like it's on the page, especially in the section where Mira and her father wind up in the same leaf. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, I hope I'm not spoiling too much, but like, I don't know. I think there's something in a broad sense, this idea of interconnectivity and interbeing and inextricability, not just from parent to child or from person to ancestors or descendants but with everything, you know, I think there's just that level of connectivity and there are these manifestations that we're in, like you're manifested right now as Sheila in whatever body you're in and I'm Brad and, but those manifestations change. And the question for me is like, well, what is like, is there an essence? Is there a soul? Is there some kind of, I don't know, like uh, consciousness that continues or is un breakable. I, you know, I don't know. It seems like maybe that that could be the case. I'm, I'm open to the possibility, but that's, as, <laughs> that's as far as I can get. It's so, it's such a head scratcher, you know? Well, and nobody has like, there's no authority. I mean, that's the other thing that I was thinking about, or I think it's even in the book, like, well, there's just, there's no, there's no authority you can turn to for these answers, which is kind of wild that nobody on earth knows better than you do the answers to these questions. Right. You'd think somebody I, know. <laughs> I, I think sometimes I'm like, there's got to be at least somebody like, I think I'm, I'm often fascinated by, uh, like the monks, like the Buddhist monks who are like extremely skilled meditators who have near death experiences because I'm like, well, if anybody's going to be able to like keep their wits about them in this transitional space, it would be somebody who's like kind of zenned out while it's happening. And so maybe someone like that would have some instruction but then i try to read like the tibetan book of the dead and i'm just like whoa this is just wild you know so i don't find i haven't found it satisfying is the is the yeah. uh, is where i end up and so i want to ask again just because you were raised by a father who did not believe in god and yet you've written this book where there is a god where do you land on that do, do you have a strong feeling 
I don't really have an answer, I guess. I'm interested in the question of God, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I have no, I have no idea. Yeah, I don't either. I, uh, I feel like as a parent, it gets a little bit harder for me just cause like your kids will ask you. <laughs> and so I got to come up with something, you know, I you got... can't say, I don't know. You can't just say, I don't know. No, you can, you can, but then they'll be like, why not? You know, I don't know. It's just, it always escalates. <laughs> so you have to, I just think it for, it forces my hand a little bit more to want to make sure that I don't say the wrong thing uh, or say too little. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like you want to do a good job on something like that. Whatever you say, they'll, they'll come to their own thing about it anyway. That's right. I want to talk to you about another character in the book who factors in Tamira's life and has a huge impact on her. And that is Annie. She's an orphan and kind of came up in what, like foster care or, you know, didn't have her well, parents. An orphanage. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then you have, you know, all of these young aspiring critics at this American Academy of American criticism who are drawn to her and you describe her this way. You say, Annie had no one. She was completely alone. That was why they were drawn to her. Mira and her friends admired her deeply. She was who they were pretending to be. I recognize that. I like, I recognize myself in that. Like, what is it? I, I kind of conceive of the kids or the young people at the American Academy of American Criticism to be like art students or like MFA students. Like that was the corollary in my mind. And I had a lot of that, especially in my youth of like, having this admiration for like the, the solitary writer or the writer who had been through a lot and really anybody who had been through a lot of weird, hard stuff. I find myself drawn to them because I feel like they know things about the things that I'm afraid of. That's kind of what you're saying here, right? Yeah. That's such a nice way of putting it. The orphan is kind of a heroic figure. I mean, it's, it's a cliche to say, but like in so much children's literature, the character has no parents. I mean, there's just something that we're drawn to about that independence and that that having to make your own identity and you're sort of like the original one. Like if you don't have parents, you're the original self in some sense. And if you do have parents, you're always kind of a better or worse or some version of them or you're trying to sort of make your sense of the world. But, well, is it like dad says it is or is it like mom says it is? You know, there's... But an orphan, it just feels like in touch with everything because there are no parents. They're in touch with the city. They're in touch with so much more, you know, whereas a kid with parents, you're just kind of under the parents all the time. So she, you know, and, and then these, she just, I guess, represents this kind of liberation from from all that. And I mean, these guys that are, that are, that are in the book are kind of soft. I mean, they're attending the American Academy of American Critics. I mean, who does that? <laughs> um, so, of course, they sort of admire her. So I want to talk to you a little bit uh, about Annie in terms of how I drew a parallel between, uh, especially how should a person be. But it seems like another book in which you have a female protagonist who in relationship to another female character is liberated like spiritually slash creatively. Like, do you recognize a parallel there? I was thinking of Margot and for, I've, 
I've read How Should a Person Be more than once, um, but my memory is terrible. So it's Margot and Sheila in How Should a Person Be, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, that's correct. And I feel like there is a similar effect happening where there's a female character who becomes a kind of sounding board or liberator creatively for the protagonist. Did you recognize that? I wonder if, I'm not sure if Annie liberates Mira creatively, but there is the same kind of fascination and, yeah, being drawn to this woman for reasons that you can't quite explain and that woman's a bit more feral than you and um seems more connected to life or the important things about life and you know you feel that you fall short um so yeah there is there is that similarity for sure uh, i was thinking a bit about margo when i was writing this any character okay i was wondering you know because I do think if we're lucky, we have friends in our life as creative people who can open us up like that. Like, I find that there are certain people that I'm just funnier around. It's like uh, they open you up, you know, like some sort of portal in me gets opened up and every like funny thought I've ever had just comes like springing out of me. Yeah, I think that's that makes perfect sense. I mean, why do you fall in love with your wife and not all, you know, all these all the other women in the world. I mean, there's just different things with different people. That just seems so clear. Like, why does that person inspire love in you? Why does that person inspire humor in you? Why does that person inspire, you know, it's that rage, etc. Well, okay. But I think like what we're talking about with respect to Annie and maybe even to a greater extent, Margot, in how should a person be and in your life is about art. And yeah. I don't, I don't know, like, I don't know if I have anybody in my life who I have as a, like an art, art sounding board, somebody who really helps me like work my way through ideas and books and, you know, like catalyzes me in that way. That's a very fortunate thing to have. Like, is that an accurate representation of Margot for you? It seems that way from the outside looking in, or is that overstating it? It's just a, a very alive friendship. I mean, and now we've been friends for 20 years. And yeah, I just, you know, I go over to her. She has the, she lives about two blocks away from me and she has a studio in her garage and it's very beautiful. And this winter during COVID, she had, they call it a chiminea. It's like a little portable chimney or I don't know how you would describe it. It's cast iron and you can burn logs in it. And so all winter we would sit outside her studio in her yard around this sort of chimney that I suppose she ordered on Amazon or whatever off the internet and burn logs and like smoke and drink and like just and have snow at our feet. And it was so cold. And I would come home smelling like, you know, fire, which is not actually a nice smell, like the smell of fire smoke. <laughs> right. Like I'd have to like have a shower and like wash. I couldn't wear those clothes again. But um, yeah, it's just a very, it's a very alive friendship. And I'm not sure if we any more any more literally work through our creative problems together but we show each other you know intermittently what we're doing and just the fact of having her in my life is reassuring I'll know she's going to be able to I, I'll know I can show her the book I'll just having her in my mind somehow um, even if it's not yeah like a, anything um, directly collaborative and I have, I have, I have other friends as well that 
I don't know. I think all all my friendships, almost all my friendships have some relationship to my work or their work or a love of thinking in this way. I have a lot of email correspondences. Yeah, I think I would just dry up if I didn't have all of that. I want to ask you about the role of visual art in your work and in your creative process, because it feels like you're responding to it. I'm thinking of the Manet painting of the asparagus in this book. I'm thinking of Margot and her work and how should a person be. I don't know if it, fa I have not read motherhood yet, so I don't know if it's factors in, but like visual art is meaningful to you to maybe a higher degree than many writers. You often, f it seems like you're often working from it to some extent. Yeah, and music probably means less to me than it does to other writers. I feel like I never have an answer to music questions. Like, I spend almost no time listening to music. It's just what, who knows why certain art forms draw you and others don't really touch you that much. I mean, I like songs, etc., but I don't, you know, if I'm working, I can't have music on. And then when I'm not working, I don't want music on. I just want it to be quiet. So I I've always, you know, I was married to an, uh, a music critic and I thought, well, you know, when we were, when we first got together, I thought, well, here's here, I'm finally going to come to understand and feel and appreciate music. And it just didn't happen. You know, where's, where's visual art? I don't know. It, it, it's important to me in a way that I don't know why to me it, I can see so many analogs between visual art and literature and for me, I really love the rhythm of sentences and, and, and that's, I guess, where I hear what people get out of music. That's where I hear, you know, the rhythm and, and the beauty and the tone that I think people mostly get out of music. But I get that so strongly from words, sentences on the page that I just don't, music doesn't feel necessary to me. But then I love how with a painting, you can just take the whole thing in at once. Like a book, you have to go through every single page in order. You can't just have this encounter with the whole thing at once. And I think that's what I love so much about painting and what I kind of envy about working in that medium, because you want a person who reads your book to come away with a single, or at least I want them to come away with like a single, or especially with this book, a single image or a single, to be able to hold the whole thing in their head at once, the, the way you hold a painting in your head sort of in one glance. But how much better would it be to just not have to work through a whole book to get that complete picture inside you? I can't help but think of like microchips being implanted in people's brains at some point. Like, what's that going to, I feel like something like that could happen, <laughs> you know? Where and then the whole novel will just like appear <laughs> and they don't have to read any pages. It'll yeah. just be like the whole shape of the novel there in their head. Yeah. I mean, something like that, you know, like just like a, a quick download or something, you know, might be where people are I headed if we become full cyborgs at some point, but. For sure. I'm sure it's probably going to happen. Someone's still kind of relieved not to be here for that. Yeah, right. <laughs> Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Um, 
So a, another process question. Like I read that with mother with the, your book Motherhood, you had this kind of like gigantic document into which you were putting all of your reading and writing and notes that got to be like almost like what a million words. I mean, it was huge. Maybe half that. I don't know. Okay. And then um, you're kind of accumulating all that. And then from that mass, you start to like shape and cut and write and rewrite and all the rest. Is that a process that carries over from project to project? Was that specific to motherhood? Did you have a process like that for pure color where you are sort of in gathering mode and then you work from that big document to sort of shape your story? I mean, it was like that for how should a person be in motherhood. And then with pure color, I would say it was less like that. There wasn't quite as much excess. Yeah, there there, there wasn't nearly as much excess. Do you know why? Again, I think it has to do with motherhood and how should a person be. The, the impulse behind those was I wanted to figure things out. And so if you're trying to figure things out, then there's a lot more writing that all that writing is like attempts to figure out, figure out, figure out, figure out, you know, where, whereas I wasn't really trying to figure out anything with this book. So maybe I didn't need, so I didn't need to be going over the same material over and over and over again. You were like accepting of the mystery <laughs> or like the unknowability of things. Maybe it just was more instinctual and less and less of, like I said at the beginning, less of a intellectual puzzle this book it was it was more in my body or it was more the way that it happened was it happened more to me than me deliberately trying to do something at the computer somehow yeah and you i've heard you say or i've read you say that you with how should a person be you tried to forget about perfection and trying to craft like really perfect sentences and to kind of uh, i think you said follow the opposite of my instincts and then with mm -hmm. motherhood, you got into like the pursuit of perfection and trying to kind of like craft these really gem-like sentences. I'm wondering, mm -hmm. like on a related note, if what the process was like for pure color, like was it in some sort of happy median or did it, it function differently? No, I mean, I, I wasn't trying to go against my instincts at all. I wasn't trying to make, you know, sentences that sound like speech and I, I wasn't interested in ugliness. Yeah, it was more it was more in the direction of motherhood. Like I was trying to make something beautiful. And I always like that idea from Aristotle that you from the poetics where you basically want to make a form where, where nothing can be taken away anymore without damaging the whole. So the only stuff that's left in the book is stuff that that if you took it away, the the book would kind of fall apart. So ultimately you try to make something as short as possible. I like the length of this book. I mean, it feels shorter than the others because I, I did want it to be sort of one glance. I did want a person to be able to hold the whole book in their head at once. I've also heard you say before that you want your books to feel like they were written from beginning to end. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And, and like, I, I'm quoting you from like past interviews, so maybe your feelings have changed. <laughs> I don't know if you still believe what you said in the past, but does that square with how you approach your work? Well, I think it just comes out of like a ch like the when I first read books, I thought that's how they were written, and that's what anyone would assume when you're little and you're reading books, or you're eleven and you're reading books. You just think that it was written from the first sentence to the last, just sort of, and so. I, I think that's probably the only reason I want 
somebody to feel that when they're reading it because that's just what a book is it's something you read from beginning to end so so it shouldn't it have been written from beginning to end I don't know it just I, I don't even know what to say I feel like I said that so long ago I can't remember <laughs> why I even would have said it but well I underline you it because I see the struggle like you don't want to see the writer struggling that's right that's there's no I don't think there's beauty in that there's there's beauty in effortlessness so you want it to seem effortless and you don't want to be there with I mean, I don't want to, I don't think I want the writer, the reader to feel like they're experiencing what I experienced when I was writing it. I yeah. want to hide all that. Hey, I underlined oh. it. I underlined it. So it, it spoke to me. I was like, yes, like that was, I was like nodding as I read it. I was like, that's kind of what you want, right? You want it to, you don't want the struggle to be seen, even if no. the book is about struggle. It's ballet. Yeah, yeah right. It's like dance. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to, you the illusion is that it's easy for them to do that, you know, to go on point and to be lifted into the air. And, you know, I mean, it's like this crazy athletic feat that they're doing, but it just doesn't seem like that. Oh, it's funny that you said it's like ballet. And then you said, it's like ballet. It's like dance. I thought you said, it's like LA. It's like dance. Oh, and I was LA. like, like, yes, yes. yes. Like <laughs> People in LA <laughs> don't want you to see the struggle either. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, I want to move on and talk to you about the work that you have done in conversation with people. Cause it's not often that I get to talk to somebody who's interviewed as many people as you have. Like I'm always the one sitting here asking people questions, but you've done a lot of this and have been on both sides of the table, so to speak. I, I know that you had to sort of take a break from it. Like you, you kind of paused that the way that you paused art criticism but can you just talk about that work and like where you are with it now? I just interviewed the writer Karen Bylan. Do you know her? No. So I just, I, she's got a book coming out this year called Revenge of the Scapegoat. You should look into her. She's terrific. I think it's her fourth or fifth book. So I just interviewed her for the Paris Review. And I think, yeah, and I interviewed, I've, I, 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 in, it's funny, in the beginning, I never used to interview writers, but now I, I do like to do that. I just never felt like I had any questions for writers. It just all seemed like, well, it's on the page. It's self-evident. Yeah, I sort of lost my curiosity in other people for a while. And so then I couldn't do interviews. And well, then it came why? back. But it was a different curiosity. I think because I was really looking for answers in other people. And I thought other people had answers for me. And everyone was kind of like an oracle. And I just was looking for the meaning of life in these conversations. And then I, then that just ended. I just realized I wasn't going to find that there in other people, you know, that that wasn't the right direction to be going in anymore. So that ended. And there was a few years when I didn't interview anybody. And now I'm interested again, not for the same reason, not because I'm trying to look for answers that I don't have in myself, but because, yeah, because people are interesting. And I, I naturally have a lot of questions, just like you probably naturally have a lot of questions. That's the kind of person that becomes an interviewer. Whereas not everybody has questions, which is always amazing to me, you know. <laughs> I'm like, I always say, like, I am, my default mode is confusion. Like, I am just <laughs> muddling through, you know, like, I need these conversations. But I also feel like a good conversation, or at least a conversation that aspires to be good or wants to try to talk about meaningful things is important. We don't have enough of that, you know, in the age that we live in. Like you talk about those epistolary relationships that you have in email. Like, I think you can get some of that there. Obviously you can get it around the chiminea with uh, Margot, 
which by the way sounds delightful i a i kind of want to i want to get a chimenea even though it's going to make <laughs> all of my clothes smell bad <laughs> and uh it just sounds delightful to sit around a chimenea and smoke and drink and have meaningful talks but um, yeah she made a painting of it actually called fire she had a show at white cube online of, of course about six months ago and the sort of the central painting of the show was you know those folding chairs around the chimenea in the snow it's it's really nice to have it documented in that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. What does she do with the painting? Like, do you get any of these paintings? Have you, do you have any of her work? I got a painting from her recently and I bought it because otherwise she could have sold it for a lot of money. So I got, <laughs> I got the friend rate, but um, yeah, it's this incredible painting of trees, huge. And I was in her studio and you know, I just fell, I was like completely in love with this painting over months and months and months. And then it somehow came out that, that she hadn't given it to her dealer yet. She hadn't sold it. And I had basically no money in the bank, so but I I, I just told her I I, I I want to buy the painting and and I sort of paid paid it to her over the course of a year in installments, you know, every month and um and bought her a leather couch for her for her studio and it was just like a series of it was money and trades and everything and now I have it and I'm so happy. Well, I don't actually have it because it's in the museum, but I'll get it back. I'll get it in about six months. Oh wow, that's great! How I've been big? Waiting a year and a half for this painting. I don't how... know how big does it? I guess it's probably about six feet tall and how many feet wide? More than that, like ten feet wide. I could be. It's something like that. That's how it feels. That's how tall. That's how big it feels. Maybe it's a little bit smaller. Maybe, maybe it's even a little bit bigger. I don't know. I'm not very good at. I'm not sure. But that's big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really big. I'm wondering, do you have any like visual artistic skill? No, I, I, I recognized that very early on. I remember being in like grade four and there was, I had a friend, Christy Lee Green, and her mother was an art teacher. And I remember drawing, we were just like, it was, I guess it was art class and like looking over at her page and just realizing I, I have no, I, I can't compare. And I just sort of gave up then to see how good hers was. I remember exactly what she was drawing too. And I just thought this is not, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. And I just kind of gave up. Yeah. You've described a similar experience that you had, like standing at the edge of a soccer field with your dad when you were a kid, when I think you were like, yeah, I'm very good at giving up. I think you were, I realized what I'm no good at. <laughs> no, but you were like, yeah, we'll get to it. Cause like you, you were weeping and I think like he was sensitive and understanding enough to realize that this wasn't going to be your thing. But um, you have said that you knew from the age of 15 that you were going to be a writer. It could have even been earlier. I think at 15, that's when I read Kafka. And that's when I was like, oh, oh, you can do anything you want. And I hadn't quite realized that before. Like I loved writing even, you know, from the time that I was a small child, but I don't think I had realized how incredible a book could be. You know, I read The Metamorphosis and I'd not read anything like that before. And so, yeah, that, I think that's, that maybe was a, a point where I realized this is, this is, this could be so much more fun than I understood. You know, I think I liked writing before, but I thought you had to write in a certain way. And so there was always this, like, I like it, but it's kind of a drag too, because you've got to write about your grandmother's hands, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> and then I read the metamorphosis and, and then I really started reading literature and then, yeah. Well, yeah, your work is often characterized as being like an exploration or like testing the outer limits of the novel's form or asking questions about what constitutes a novel and these kinds of things. And you also, like you said, Kafka, I think you also really responded to the work of Henry Miller and Marquis de Sade. 
yeah. uh, all of whom are doing similar stuff, you know, and it seems like you really respond to like the wildness in a work. Uh, like there's something, and I get that, like it's freeing, you know, like somebody who's yeah. really, and that's how I, I think that's what I was trying to say about pure color, maybe not elegantly enough, is that like when I was talking about the issue of courage and confidence, it's like, not everybody can be that wild, or if they try to be, it can be a big fat mess. <laughs> you know, like, so I admire that about your work is that it manages to hold together. And I know enough about the writing process to know how much work goes into making that happen. I, I like both things. I like freedom. I really love seeing somebody be completely free, but I also, I also really like when the work of art really has a shape. And so how do you do both those things? Like how are you at once really free and also the work of art? Yeah. has a shape at the end. It's not just a mess or it's not just an expression of freedom, but there's also an expression of, yeah, like you say that there's a, well, I just always come back to the idea of a shape. Like it sticks, it, it holds together in your head. There's no pieces falling away. It's all there stuck together, which is hard if you're, if you're like you say, being wild, but I've, I don't know if Henry Miller has a shape, actually, but I still love him. Why? Like, what is it about him? I, I, I think there's something spiritual about his work. And I, I, I do feel that, that what, it, what his work, the reason he wrote was because he felt this vitality, this life energy, this... I, when, I, when I think of him, I just think of this image of, like, the, the breezes blowing through his chest. Like, there was just so much life and spirit and... And that's what I feel on the page. Just, yeah, that vitality, that love, love of living, that joy of being alive. Um, that's what it all is for me, Henry Miller. He lived to be like like well into his 90s, didn't he? he yeah, lived... he got, he got, he was very old yeah. at the end. And like living in Big Sur, like that's, that seems kind of cool. <laughs> amazing. I want to be that way. I wish, I think I wish I were more that way. 90 and living in Big Sur. <laughs> Yeah, no, but it's just like that that vitality and yeah, yeah. There's so much love in his in him for the world and for life and for women and men and like you know. It, I mean, I think not everyone would share that point of view, but I I see the books as as full of love. Uh, something I did not know about you, I think I was learning a lot about uh, you know just how you came up as a writer, how you got your start, and there's something I want to talk to you about with respect to like paths not taken because I think it was really insightful and you were kind of describing getting ready to, to try to apply for an internship, I think at Harper's mm -hmm. and then basically reneging and deciding not to send the application. Yeah. I mean, I was working at a magazine in my early twenties called shift. It was in Toronto. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was kind of like, Wired magazine. It was like interested in technology and culture. And I loved magazines. There were so many good magazines back then. When was it? Around the year 2000, even before that, the late 90s. Nest, you know, Spy, Might. They were just, what a great age for magazines. Anyways, so I was working at this magazine and I, I thought, I want to apply for this internship at Harper's and, and, and work there. And I put together the whole application. 
which involved, I think, finding something that could go in the readings section potentially and, you know, a bunch of other little exercises they made you do. And then, yeah, I didn't send it in at the last moment. And at the time, I thought I didn't send it in because I didn't think it was good enough and I was scared and whatnot. But very shortly after that, I just left the whole world of magazines and realized that that and journalism and editing wasn't really for me. And, you know, I... I guess I went to New York on a trip around that time and I had written an email to Malcolm Gladwell because he had just written that article called The Tipping Point and it was in The New Yorker and it kind of blew my mind. And I wanted to go see him because I admired him and I thought, well, I don't know if I'm a journalist or not. Maybe I can ask him some questions. And he was very gracious and and he invited me to visit him at his office at The New Yorker. And I went, and all I remember from the conversation is, I remember this so vividly, was asking him, you know, about his experiences being a journalist. I said, you know, I don't really like being edited. And he said, it's a gift to be edited. And at that moment, I was like, we're different creatures. Like, you and I are not the same. And I kind of realized, oh, I'm not a journalist. I don't think it's a gift to be edited. I, I think it's a imposition to be edited. And and then I kind of came back to Toronto and, and, and left that left my job at Shift Magazine and decided to go to university. I went to university late. I was like, yeah, I went to university after about four years of being out of high school. I didn't think I was going to go, but I realized this is – I just written an article about like aerial holics, these people that are in love with – were in love with Ariel, the little mermaid, like grown men that had like a whole room in their house devoted to Ariel. And I just thought this is like – I'm not learning anything. This is stupid. I don't want to, I want to think about, I, I, this is time. It's time to go to school. Like, so all those things together, just like, yeah, pushed me in a completely different direction. But I mean, I agree with Malcolm Gladwell now, like, yes, it is a gift to be edited. And in fact, what I, what I thought at the time was proof that I wasn't a journalist, I think was actually just proof that I was like, like a young asshole writer who thought they knew best. You know, I don't think, I, I think I drew the wrong conclusion from what he said, but even if it was the wrong conclusion, I still think it was the right decision to, to leave magazines. So in school, I mean, I feel like, like my perception of you is just that you have like a, you have like a high degree of like a solid sense of your own project or something. Like you project confidence. I don't know if that, like I'm misreading it, but like, that's the feeling I get. <laughs> like you have like a real aesthetic confidence and like a, I don't know. It's like such a keen intelligence. When you were in school, like you went to university to sort of get your education. I'm imagining you were also like, I want to write, like this will give me kind of like a place to hide out and write. Can you just talk about like that part of your apprenticeship and like how it looked just because I think a lot of people listening uh, are likely to be fans of yours and probably wonder like, how did Sheila Hetty form? Like what was the work that you were doing in those days that helped get you ready to publish well, you publish your first book in your twenties, you know, so that's mm -hmm. very young to be doing that. So just wondering what happened at university. Well, I went to theater school actually when I was like 18, the national theater school of Canada and was there for one year as a playwright. And I had a very rich sort of relationship with this director and we smoked a lot of pot and talked a lot about ideas and about art. And it was a really, you know, it was like hugely important to me. And um, and then university, university, when I went to University of Toronto, which was about four years later or three years later, there I studied art history and philosophy. And I really just didn't care about the degree, although I did end up getting a degree. I mostly wanted to 
yeah, I just wanted to, I wanted to think and I wanted to read great books and I, I didn't want to read literature. I wanted to read philosophy and I wanted to study paintings and I wanted to, I just, I didn't have any friends at the time. I just was, I remember being very, very alone. I, I, I remember it was New Year's and I had no one to spend New Year's with, but I just, I was like reading Kierkegaard and, and Nietzsche and, and, and those were the two philosophers that made the biggest impact on me. And I, I just, I was writing the middle stories. So I published the middle stories when I was 24. So when I was in university, when I was at U of T, I published them. And I remember taking like a Wittgenstein course and like dropping out after a few days. Cause it was just, it was not what I wanted to think about. So I, I took economics. I just sort of like took whatever I thought I, I, I needed to know and whatever I was curious about. And I did a lot, I was doing a lot of like interviewing people I had this project called Portraits of the Insane, which is the name of a painting series by Delacroix. And I would like approach people on campus who seemed interesting to me and sit down with a tape recorder and ask them these questions. And it was like, I didn't tell them that the project was called Portraits of the Insane. But to me, the idea was that, I don't even remember what the idea was, but that was like my only contact with other people was sort of like doing these strange interviews, which I I don't know what, what became of those tapes. But yeah, I don't know. I was... It was like one of the best times in my life. It was just such a rich time for me. There's something I read of you where you're talking about how all of your books are a way of communicating with the people that you love the most. And that certainly feels the case with Pure Color. Like this definitely feels like a book about your dad or a book to your dad. I think of motherhood. You know, it's a book that is thinking of your mom and your grandmother, right? I mean, they're like your kind of matrilineal heritage or whatever. And How Should a Person Be is about friends and especially about Margot. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that's, I mean, that, that feels accurate to you is the first question, like that a pretty mm -hmm. accurate assessment of like how these books have come to be. And do you think that's something that you'll continue to do? Like these are all kind of intimacies in a way, like they're dialogues or yeah. conversations with people you love. Or well, there aren't a lot of people left to do that. <laughs> I hope it's over, really. <laughs> what about Feldman? Yeah. I feel like your dog deserves yeah. a book at some point, right? I don't know. He can't read. So <laughs> it's, that would be sort of disappointing. I don't know. If dogs are too moving. You almost can't write a book about a dog. I mean, I, I, I read The Friend, the Sigrid Nunez book, and it's just too painful. I, I couldn't. No, dogs are, I don't know. Yeah, there's just too much feeling for a dog to to write a book about it. I tried to write a book about a dog, but failed. And? Failed. Yeah, like, it, 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 was, it, it became too interior. I like, uh, <laughs> but I it's thought really about nice it. People write dogs well, though. I, I always like seeing a writer that can write, that can really capture a dog in literature. I think that's really hard to do. I, I admire that. Yeah. Well, okay. So this brings me to like my next question, which is that. You know, if you're writing about the people that are most important to you, parents, best friends, and as adults, I think most of us, like we only have so many of those. I feel like the the field of possibilities kind of narrows on that front as we get older. It gets harder to maintain like really close friendships and I don't know. That's the way it seems to me anyway. So if you're approaching a stage of life where maybe you've written those books and you've said what you needed to say to like mom and dad and best friend or whatever... Do you have a sense of like how else you will find that kind of like centerpiece or that foundational motivation? Do you know, do you know what else it would be if it's not that? No, but I'm excited. Like, I just feel really excited. Yeah. To, to start writing again. 
because um you know the last six months have mostly been all the little fine details of like pure colored putting this book in the world so i'm yeah i'm dying to get back to to thinking about those kind of things so there's not an because i know you also like to have like lots of projects going at once like that's kind of like your default mode so i and i liked how you put it you're like so at least like the idea is that at least one of them will be interesting to me at any, you know, <laughs> on any given day yeah. yeah yeah so i'm uh i'm wondering like you know do you have other projects that are sort of like on the back burner or that might have something in them that you could pursue or when you finish pure color and you know now it's rolling out into the world are you really starting from like maybe a cleaner slate than you have in the past like does this feel like some sort of like pivot point in your writing life and do you feel like the next thing is going to be like a departure in some way from previous works it feels it feels like that but i i can't say that it doesn't always feel like that i mean i think that it probably always feels like that like you finish a book and you're like okay where am i now you know where where in the world am i now because for the last four years i've had my head in the sand you know i i don't know i just and you look up and, and the the world looks different and you've changed and you're older and you know, the people around you, Oh, this person's not as close. This person's closer. Like every, the architecture of your life has changed a little bit from when you began that book. And then you always sort of start from a new place. So, so yes, it, it's true of now, but I think it's also kind of always true. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I will be excited to see what, what you come up with. I always love reading your work. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to talk with you. And again, I found this book so sweet and moving and smart and funny. Uh, we didn't get to that, but like you're a really funny <laughs> writer in like a, the, a deadpan way that I love. And I know people make note of this, but I think you deserve credit for being funny in addition, to, in addition to being like really smart. I think you like the smart part of it gets a lot like more attention than the funny. And I'm like, she's really funny. Like, just that uh, here's what here's what i appreciate like this is what made me laugh like the american academy of american critics made me laugh and then the character that you, the the guy character at the school named maddie just the choice of name like i feel like choosing <laughs> maddie as his name <laughs> was just perfect and you're really good at those kinds of like small brush stroke like jokes you know it's just exactly right and i knew exactly who he was the minute i <laughs> heard his name <laughs> thanks um, so I don't know, congratulations on it. I hope, you know, enjoy the, the process of publication and regeneration or rejuvenation. You know, we think we have to have some downtime to sort of refill our well or whatever, before we get into the next thing and just be very interested to see what that thing is when it manifests and, uh, kudos on writing a beautiful book about difficult stuff. Thanks so much. And I'm excited for your book to be in the world, too. I really loved reading your book, and I think it's going to be an exciting thing in the world. Okay, there you go. That is Sheila Hetty, and her new novel is called Pure Color, available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, wherever books are sold. You can find Sheila on the internet at SheilaHetty.com. One more time, the book is Pure Color. It is excellent. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? The entire archive of this show is available to you, the listener, free of charge. If you like this program, if you get something from it, if you listen regularly, I hope you'll consider supporting it. You can do so for as little as $1 a month. 
over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash other PPL pod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff, a t-shirt, a tote bag, coffee mug, book club subscription. I will wish you a happy birthday. I will send you a note in the mail, patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Another way to help the show is to rate it and review it over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That helps it out uh, algorithmically. It helps other listeners find the show. If you have something to say to me, you can email me at letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. This program also has its own official app. Did you know that? The Other People with Brad Listy app. It too is free. Go get the app wherever apps are available. The Other People podcast has its own official YouTube channel. Go search for it by name over at YouTube, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and hit the subscribe button. It's free. And I think that's it. I think I got to everything. I might be forgetting something, but if I am, I'll get to it next time. I have some great conversations coming up. Stay tuned. I will be back again, possibly Sunday, definitely next Wednesday. And I hope you're doing okay out there. All right. This is it. This is the end.